0: Matt Boudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 263 you're listening to. My guest today is Jacob Skiba, who's a producer, engineer, and mixer who has worked with a wide variety of really outstanding people that I'm a big fan of. Steve Earle and the Dukes, Gary Clark, Willie Nelson, North Mississippi All-Stars, Government Mule, Merle Haggard, Warren Hayes, and Sean Colvin quite a list of very, very cool people. And Jacob comes to us as a recommendation from former WCA guest, Steve Shady. Looking forward to our chat today. So Jacob Skiba coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about getting organized for the new year. 2020 is upon us. It's time to reflect on what you've been doing, what you could be doing, and what you will be doing here in the new year. It's also time to uh, get your affairs in order, and I don't mean because you're planning on dying, but getting your affairs in order to prepare for the new year. There's something to be said for being organized and being prepared. I know that a lot of us like to do it for our sessions, but we don't always want to do it for our own business, for our own selves. And this pertains to everything from important documents, taxes, et cetera, to uh, making sure that we've added all of the things that we, our new purchases to our insurance writers, whatever it is. Staying organized and staying on top of this stuff is so, so important. For those of you that are type A people, it comes to you easy. For those of us that are not, we have to work at it, and that's okay. its I'm no expert myself. I've been working at it forever. It's always a work in progress. There are days I am supremely organized, and there are days where I am horribly disorganized. Things get done, but, but all in all, I have to really work at it. So here are a couple reminders. Like my kids and their homework, and I'm always just telling them, you know, look, I know this math assignment may not be due until the end of the week, but if you do a little bit each night by the time you get to Friday, when it is due, you're golden. You don't have to worry about it. So whether you have kids or not, and and you get my homework analogy, the point is, is that if you do a little bit of every, of of these things each day, it's less painful. Let's take, for example, uh, your gear. First of all, if you haven't insured your gear you really need to consider doing that. I just got a, a, saw a post from some good friends of mine. Unfortunately, their house is broken into, and that can be stressful on, on anybody, whether it's in your house or your business. So make sure your stuff is organized in the sense that you have a spreadsheet that documents all of the products you have, their serial numbers if they have it, and their replacement value, simple as that. To get started, maybe you wanna take your phone and go around your studio, and start taking pictures of all the gear. You know, like, for example, I've got this, there's a universal audio arrow sitting in front of me. I could take that, take a picture of it, turn it over, take a picture of the serial number, and then go through the pictures as I'm sitting down at a spreadsheet and, you know, type in, you know, universal audio arrow, serial number, replacement value, et cetera, et cetera. And what it is, you know, audio interface. So take care of all that. If you have an insurance program already together, I bet you have some new gear you haven't added. You need to add that in. That's very important. And by the way, I'll include a list of some potential insurance carriers in the show notes for you to examine so you can get your act together in this department. What else? Taxes. So I use this software. It's free called Mint. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it. It's just, it ca- it helps to organize all your uh, accounts, whether that's Uh, a checking account or a credit card account. It pulls it all in, and you can categorize all of the transactions. And then at the end of the year, what I do is I export those transactions that are business-related to uh, our tax person, and that gets sorted out and taken care of. It is a pain in the ass to categorize, I will say that. So what I recommend you do if you're in that same boat is start going through and do a little bit each day, you know? Even if you set a goal of like I'm gonna I'm gonna categorize 25 things today. If you do that and you do that each day, then like the math homework as you get towards tax day, which is of course April 15th here in the United States, you'll be golden, right? But hopefully you're turning in your documents to your, tax person well ahead of that deadline, of course. I think the phrase is, is, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. So make sure you get all that stuff in early and, and do all that. Also, talked about this in the last episode, and I've talked about it in past episodes going back in the early stages of the podcast. Digitize documents. If you have, you know, I just came across some uh, car repair records that I haven't digitized yet. Got to do that. And, you know, find the software that works for you. Find a cloud account that works for you, whether it's Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever you use. I don't really care. Just do it. Make sure that you have that stuff so that you can search for it. Uh, Evernote's a good one. I'll put a link in the show notes for that uh, because I think if you do the paid level of that, that scans your documents so that you can actually search for Tires. Let's say you bought a set of new tires. You can hunt that down. You can do a search through all of your digitized documents and come across the document you're looking for. It's also a great time to go through your bank records. And man, if you've got some subscriptions out there for some pro audio things that you're not using, or you know, some entertainment things you're not using, it's time to get rid of them. Right? Start to uh, save that money and uh, quit paying for things that you're not using. As I mentioned in my last episode. If you got gear that you're not using, get rid of it. Sell it. You know, between eBay, Reverb.com, and you know the various uh, gear sales things on social media that you can access, there is no reason to hold on to gear that you are not using. And don't be ridiculous about the price either. Seriously, look up what things are really worth. Don't do the well, man, I paid a hundred bucks for this and it's, you know, I'm going to sell it for 98 and I've owned it for 20 years. Don't do that. Unless it's a vintage piece of gear that is highly valuable. If it's like, you know, I don't know, an SPX 90, seriously, get rid of it. (laughs) Give it, set a low price, get rid of it, move it out, you know, put that cash to use somewhere. All right. That's enough of my preaching to you. I just want to make sure that you're thinking about this stuff. This is important stuff. And I'm sure that there's more stuff that I'm not even thinking of here. But uh, yeah, get organized, get set for the new year. There's a lot of possibility for you here in the new year and staying organized and on top of things really, really can help. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Jacob Skiba, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jacob, thank you for being with me today. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Awesome, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here.
1: You uh, came on my radar because of our mutual friend, Steve Shady. That's correct, yeah. Steve emailed me and said that he thought you'd be a, a great person to have on the show, and I respect Steve, so I took that seriously and immediately reached out.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Steve's a good buddy of mine and we've been making records a long time together.
1: You're coming to me from Austin, Texas at the moment. Where did you grow up though?
0: So I grew up, I I went to high school in Tyler, Texas. I did a little bit in Dallas, Flower Mound area, and then my family moved to Tyler. And I went to grade school and I went to high school in Tyler, Yeah, and then moved to Austin.
1: What kind of a town is Tyler in terms of its size, and and what's the music scene like there, or is there a music scene?
0: When I was in school, when I was in Tyler's, probably 150,000 people. I'd say Tyler now is maybe closer to 200,000, two and a quarter. As far as music is concerned, there there was a bit of a music scene. I grew up as a band kid and was in high school band, jazz band that kind of stuff there was two local music shops center stage music and then a place called munt music when it comes to rock bands and and guitar players stuff like that that was kind of where to hang where you know i hung out a buddy of mine's dad had the music shop center stage and so that's where i kind of first started hanging out i remember i would go to like wednesday nights there was a, a little italian food restaurant and they would have a blues jam and that was kind of my first approach into like seeing a band in a it was a restaurant but it was a bit of a blues band kind of bar band kind of vibe you know as far as bands my age at that time there were quite a few like I had a little band it, it was all kind of ska music punk rock music you know in a sense is kind of what we were into a little bit of you know Bob Marley reggae music stuff like that but the music scene the, there was a bit of the older crowd kind of was a blues scene. And then the young kids were kind of more into a punk rock scene. Yeah. Mm. There's not a lot of places to play there. You're pretty much playing at a handful of bars or a handful of restaurants and stuff like that. Or we would have little high school parties and stuff like that, play at parties.
1: Were the music stores, would you say that they were a place where you'd hang out? And was that like a an important place in your life early on
0: very yeah very much so that's kind of where I got all my first influence as far as like I I would hang out at center stage and you know that was where I, I remember taking a few lessons at center stage but that was the first like place that kind of influenced me into like picking up musical instruments outside of band instruments you know picking up guitar and bass and stuff like that was definitely in around that scene you know
1: yeah music stores definitely can be very influential places for people in music i was talking with uh, our previous guest dave gardner about radio stations college radio stations playing an important role in his life and all these mm-hmm. different institutions that are around us i think that sometimes we forget how important they are in sure. in teaching us about music or recording or
0: yeah from for me i think my main two first like influences as far as like showing me music was my middle school band director was a good friend of mine's dad i'd go to his house he played a lot of vinyl and then when i got into high school my jazz band director turned me on to a lot of jazz music and you know i was in the little jazz program and That was kind of the first time that I started getting into classic jazz records, I guess, and listening to those kind of stuff. But other than that, yeah, the the music stops, and, and then I remember when I was, I guess I was a junior in high school, somewhere around there, the drummer in my then band's dad was a record producer, and that's kind of, he had a little home studio behind his house. There's only like two, three studios in Tyler. But he had a little home studio behind his house. That was the like, first place that I walked into a studio. I guess I was 16, somewhere around
1: there. Did that have a big impact on you?
0: Yeah, it had a huge impact. I mean, that's kind of where it all began for me. <laughs> at that point, I got a little Pro Tools rig and started you know, messing around on, I think that was an inbox or a, no, it was a 001 at that time. And started messing around with trying to get something more than a four-track cassette recording.
1: What was your primary instrument?
0: My primary so I started off as a trumpet player that was my first instrument going into sixth grade band then when i joined the jazz program it was bass and you know from there the concert band director moved me to baritone or euphonium huh to be able to read bass clef and then i spent a little bit of time in like orchestral pit playing percussion and stuff but bass was kind of my first rock and roll instrument
1: did you have your sights set on being a musician
0: yeah, very much so. Yeah, my my goal would have been to, you know, study jazz. I was real big into Jocko and stuff like that, Weather Report, Marcus Miller, stuff like that. That was kind of the goal. Of course, that takes a lot of work. <laughs> uh, you got spent a lot of time in your bedroom. So, you know, naturally playing rock and roll, punk rock music, stuff like that was a lot easier. So I kind of transitioned into that a bit.
1: When you encountered your friend's dad's studio, did that start to subvert that thought of being a musician long term
0: well that was, yeah that was the first time i remember like thinking about microphones i remember going into that studio we were just recorded a little like kind of demo thing my little high school band recorded a little demo thing his dad recorded it i remember looking at i i remember it distinctly looking at the original blue mics which looked like little i don't know if it was a dragonfly or what it was but they looked really crazy and I remember looking at those microphones and just being like, what is this? And from that point on, kind of was really interested in the studio part of, the, in other words, the other side of the glass. This is the first time I went from, musician mind to studio mind was in my buddy's dad's studio yeah and it was over microphones obsession it's kind of (laughs) it's kind of what got me like honestly I don't know some people you know everyone gets kind of caught by whatever they get caught by I always say studios are just big boom boxes if you're that kid that likes hi-fi stereos for me it was like you know making a big hi-fi stereos and then microphones microphones were crazy to me
1: Easy to get caught up in the world of microphones. I, yes, I it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, so where is. did that—how did that progress, and how did you wind up in Austin?
0: Sure, yeah. So I didn't quite finish school, <laughs> and I actually ended up going and, and kind of cruising around and, and watching bands, like jam bands. And I ended up going to that first Bonnaroo. That was in 2001, somewhere around there. Mm. And from there, I remember I ended up in Austin. The Allman Brothers were playing in Austin, like four days in Austin. I came to Austin literally after just living out of a car and backpack and listening to bands and stuff that summer. Ended up in Austin and was cam- I camped out in Austin. I just liked Austin. I decided I was going to stay in Austin so that that sunday i never left and uh kind of called around i had some, my sister has some she's a few years older than i am and she had some friends that were living in austin so i ended up renting a room from them and then that following monday the only job i had ever had was working out of dry cleaners so i called a bunch of dry cleaners and got a day job and then in the process, I uh, kind of started looking through the papers and looking for studios. And the studio that, that I engineer out of now is called Arlen Studios. That was the first major studio that I walked into it was A in the phone book, <laughs> you know. And uh, <laughs> so I literally walked in there at, at, I guess I was 18 years old. They had just kind of decided they were going to do some kind of recording school. And it was still studio during the day, and they were trying to get this first class of this recording school going, and so I jumped right in, 18 years old, and kind of ended up as an intern, enrolled in this little recording school thing. <laughs> I yeah, literally haven't
1: left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm curious. You know, at 18, you're in Austin, and you're you know, like you say, you get the dry cleaner gig. And you start looking for studios. What What do you recall of your mindset then? Were you scared? Were you focused? Were you driven? What What was going on in your brain then?
0: I was very yeah. I was very driven. I was very ignorant. But I, I remember my father always says you can outwork the world or like you you know hard work hard work. And so my theory was literally I walk in and I'll tell them I'll do anything they want me to do. I thought it was nothing to, it was not beneath me to be cleaning toilets to be able to be in this situation. And so I think when I walked in, I think those were my exact words. Well, I will do anything, (laughs) whatever you want me to do. You want me to sweep? You want me to clean toilets? You want me to make coffee? Yeah, I'll do it all. And so to me, it was like, it was an honor to be able to, if, even if I was in the front lobby at that point, I took the owner's clothes to the dry cleaning you know i would bribe them in any like try to bribe them in any way as i like, oh yeah i'll take your clothes to the dry cleaning and i I'd take your car to get it washed I'll go to whole foods and pick up almond butter whatever you want you know <laughs> whatever the client whatever the clients want the studio manager at that time in that studio you know i think he thought it was a trip that there was this little 18 year old kid who was into curtis mayfield and was into like you know we i remember having common grounds on music with stuff that Booker Teen, the MGs. I was a big Duck Dunn fan. Just stuff like that. I think they were kind of like, what? <laughs> And I would do anything. I remember when I first started, naturally, you get kind of the crumb jobs, you know, like transferring cassettes and transferring quarter-inch work tape reels to a digital medium, stuff like that. Just doing oddball jobs, going into the sessions after the session, wrapping cables, just stuff an intern does. But to me, that was great. You know, I would go work at the dry cleaners at 8 in the morning, and I would work until 1. And then at 1, I would haul ass to the studio, and I'd stay at the studio till the wee hours of the morning, and then I started all over again. Saturday was my only full day at the dry cleaners, and that kind of got me up to around 30 hours. I remember I lived off very little when I was 18. So money, it was just make enough money. I was laughing about the other day because I could go to HEB, and I could get... Totino's pizzas were 99 cents, so I could get 30. That'd be a pizza a day. That's $30. (coughs) (laughs) And it was just ramen and pizza.
1: Survival finances 101.
0: Yeah, man, but, you know, I mean, to me, I was 18. I didn't have any—I mean, that was my—that was what I wanted to do, and I was living the dream in a studio. I mean, it was—yeah, this is is a no-brainer. I never even thought twice about it.
1: If you look back at that time, and you could have done anything different, is there anything you would have done different, or do you think it worked out as it should have worked out?
0: I think it worked out amazing. You know, I was really not into going to college or school in general. I remember— I think it was my grandfather was really interested in me getting some kind of education and it was big, like he was like just get a business if I could do anything I would, I would study business more I think that's the one thing that applies to anything you do. If you're selling T-shirts or selling records, you know, a business background. That was one thing I struggled with. You know, once I learned how to make records, I didn't know how to run business, <laughs> and that's been a that's been a learning curve for sure. I mean, no one teaches you how to pay your taxes as a, as a contract labor. You know what I mean? No one teaches you like what it means to be like file self-employed as a self-employed person. You know, as a as a record maker. And those things will bite you in the ass and so like yeah business teacher you you know and it doesn't have to be you don't have to go get a business degree but you know maybe a couple of workshops or something i don't know something that would give you a little bit more of like a real world business application i think we spend a lot of time on microphones and kick drum player kick drums and stuff like that what the snare sounds like but it it could it would definitely help to know what you're going to do if you if you do make a living at it like what to do with your money
1: how did your recording career progress? And you've worked with some outstanding people that I highly respect, and have had some of them. I've had an opportunity to record in kind of radio station type situations, like Steve Earle. Mm-hmm. But how did you get up to that level of working with Gary Clark, Steve Earle, Willie Nelson, Sean Colvin? Mm-hmm.
0: About the time that I started interning at Orland, Arlen, Orland's sister started, sister studio was Pernalis which is Willie's studio, mm-hmm. right? I think the first time I went out there, was, uh, the Los Lonely Boys were cutting their first record with Steve, and my god job was to show up and like wrap cables and clean up the studio. And then it kind of turned into like runner. I think it was a good two years of doing that. During that two years, I was I would slowly sit in on a session and slowly kind of get my my feet in there and be able to be the fly on the back wall. I remember after a couple years, there was a producer that came into that studio, Pertinalis. His name was Gordy Johnson. He was a, a producer. He had a big rock band in Canada, and he had moved down here. And I, I remember he called the studio, and he was like, I want the greenest, youngest guy you got, <laughs> which was me. <laughs> so I kind of started engineering for for his production. And at that time, like I didn't even know how to run a tape machine at that point. I remember one day he looked at me, and he was like, do you know how to line this tape machine? I was like, no. Nah. And he was like, your job depends on it if you figure out how to line that tape machine. And I, I literally went and started Googling how to align tape machines and taught myself how to align tape machines over the, on the internet within two days and then aligned them wrong for the next two years, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> uh, <you> know,
1: <laughs> what, what were you doing wrong, I have to ask?
0: Well, like, when I align a deck, depending on when I'm at, off my playback reel, I'm hitting minus three, zero, whatever, if I'm at plus six or wherever I'm at. Well, I had that backwards. I was just aligning the input. Essentially, I was aligning the input. You should just nail zero. So I was adjusting my input minus three, plus three, wherever it was. (laughs) I was just backwards. I was just a little upside down. You know, it was okay. You were close. I was close enough to make records on it, and no one knew. so. So anyways, yeah, long story short is I ended up really cutting my teeth as an engineer with that producer. And we made a lot of records. During that time, I went to Canada a lot and worked on a lot of records up there. I mean, we probably made a hundred records between the two of us over that time. And through that process, I really started just operating the day-to-day workings of Pertinalis. It was really Steve Shady and I out there that were making records for those ten years. At that point, that evolved. You know, you just got to make a, I, I, You make a lot of records. You make a lot of records that just call the studio, and then. A few times a year, you get the good ones. You get records that are going to be great artist records. Those kind of kind of evolve, though. I think you got to make a lot of smaller records to get there, though. But yeah, I got really into tape machines, and that kind of became a niche thing for me. And running tape, running Pro Tools locked up together simultaneously, and. Everything for me was kind of, I was really into the old school way of record making, mixing down to half-inch machines and living on the desk and all that kind of stuff. That kind of evolved and then 10 years later, somehow I had always had the opportunity. Uh, Arlen, the studio downtown in Austin, had kind of slowed down, but it was in downtown. Willie's studio was 30 minutes outside of town. And you know they were owned by the same family. Really. And I always thought to myself that like the downtown location was always key. And so I started really pushing them. Let's reopen the downtown location. Let's reopen Arlen, open Arlen. And then in 2012, kind of got the opportunity to shut down Arlen, remodel it's 7,000 square feet, remodel the whole thing. We built a studio B in the back. And that was in 2012. So in 2013, I was kind of making a bunch of records. I had I'd been making a bunch of records out of Pertinellas all through that time. And then hit the ground in 2013 after a remodel. And, you know, was able to just build on that and build on... The first time I worked with Gary was actually out at Pertinalis, was out at the old studio. Hmm. So that was, I know, was 10 years ago now. <laughs> but yeah, just I spent 300 days a year in a studio, and that's how you start learning how to do it. And after you screw up enough records, <laughs> you stop screwing them up.
1: So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com/slash WCA30. So you you basically only had the dry cleaning job and then transitioned into full-time studio work.
0: Yeah, about the time that I started working for that producer, Gordy, yeah, I was able to leave my dry cleaning job. I had that dry cleaning job till I was about twenty. Yeah, I started. 18 then for about two years i had that dry clean job by the time i was 20 i could sustain myself not a lot but i i could make a rock and roll living
1: and rock and roll living meaning you kept your expenses low
0: yeah i kept my expenses low and i could pay my rent my first house in austin i was paying 250 bucks a month for that room wow which is crazy now yeah 250 bucks for that room i slowly graduated to a little one bedroom apartment that i paid 550 for but you know i was living under a thousand dollars That was my goal. So if I could live under a 1000 bucks, I got my cell phone bill, my car insurance, little beater car, and was able to plug along.
1: Did you learn some hard lessons about money management along the way?
0: Yeah, I did. I learned to pay your taxes.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, like I said, I
0: mean, the last thing you're thinking about is, like, how much they get. You know, really long story short is I kind of got this ball rolling and I would gotten, the, you know, was able to make a living and my girlfriend got pregnant at that time. We got married while she was pregnant. But I remember the first thing I did was we didn't really have insurance. You know, and I started calling around. And I was like, but she had privatized insurance is what was going on. So I called the privatized insurance. I was like, we're going to have a baby. What do I got to do? And they were like, we don't cover babies. And most privatized insurance doesn't cover, if you're on a PPO plan or whatever it does, most privatized insurance does not cover pregnancy. I was like, what are you talking about? You you know, that was a culture. I didn't have a lot of money at that time. And I remember we ended up getting her a job at General Motors, like two months pregnant. And they ended up bankrolling the pregnancy. She went in without a baby bump. They hired her. The insurance kicked in. They pretty much paid for the pregnancy or paid for the baby, and then she never went back after maternity leave. So thank you, General Motors. Um, (laughs) You know, but (laughs) little tricks like that. So about that time, I I wanted to buy a house. I don't know. I guess it's just what people do. So I was self-employed. I go to buy a house. I never had credit. I never had a credit card. I never had any of that. I was making a, a little bit of money. She had a job, making a little bit of money. I go to a lender and I realized that, A, I need to go take out credit card debt, essentially, to show that I have credit. So that kind of stalled that. And then that was the process. They were like, well, to prove your self-employment, we need to see tax returns. Well, I hadn't really done a lot of that. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I ended up filing back tax on five years to prove my income. Which sucks puts you into a debt But like I said I've been focusing On making records Not paying taxes You know what I mean And So yeah It's been a learning curve It took a lot of payment plans With the IRS To get me out of that And that's still a process
1: I have been there Done that I I totally know
0: I think that's a music industry thing If you focus on playing guitar You don't focus on like You know And then one day you look up And you better get your shit together They will come beating For their money So yeah That was a hard pill to swallow And I felt like I had done it as like a 25-year-old self-employed kid trying to do the right thing, trying to like not waste money, trying to like set up a house for my family, trying to do what what I needed to do and it was a learning lesson for sure.
1: So you guys had a kid, you're still working in the studio. How did things go from there? Like after you kind of did all the right things what was the bigger picture goal for you? Yeah, the bigger picture
0: goal for me was the elusive longevity of this business. I felt like on many levels I was doing okay year to year, but you just live in terror. You live in fear of like not having that next gig. That was my thing. And I'm a hard worker. Like I'll spend a lot of time in the studio. And that was my, own. that was the only thing I knew how to do was spend time in the studio. I have this young family, this brand new baby. And as long as I'm in the studio making my rate, making my day rate, then I could pay for what needed to be done. We weren't living outside of our means by any means, but it was a bit of a a process. I guess the next lesson I learned is if you spend every day in your studio, it comes back to get you. (laughs) So I guess for the first five years of my son's life, one of my regrets is stage old things. I wish I would have spent more time with him. I wish I would have been able to balance work and home life better naturally we did okay financially but it took a toll on a lot of a lot of things I guess for me it wasn't that I didn't want to be home it was that the only thing I knew how to do was make records and I was like I said I was, it was based out of fear of not having the next job not knowing what next year was going to look like everything is kind of up to the gig you're doing right then and there that's one of the tough parts about this business is like, if you're lucky you're booking two months out if you're really lucky you're booking three months out but like i'm worried about my calendar for next month i'm worried about what next year looks like i'm you know that's my mind state all the time it's like how how things operate, or like what what's it looking now now things have gotten a little bit easier one thing you know i'm 35 now one of my biggest goals right now is balance learning how to balance work and you know that's a lot of fear-based mentality like i one thing about america i i love it you can do you can work a lot you can do a lot but we're very pushed to make money and work 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 that's very great it's what makes this country great but it's also what tires out a lot of people wears a lot of people thin so for me that balance is kind of what it's going right now i would say that like i'm really interested in quality of work versus quantity (laughs) of work right now. Working smarter? I want to work smarter. I want to work on records that have more longevity, things like that. I mean, it's a lot. I I have a lot of fun making all sorts of styles of record. It's not a financial thing, but making records that will get you another gig. Yeah. You know, it's about making a record that can be heard and it will be heard and will get you another gig and and spending an equal amount of time taking care of your business. I wish someone would have told me that like a day not working and working on your business is still a working day. Mm-hmm. What you can't do is work seven days a week and then try to never squeeze in business time. You have to balance, and then you have to balance in some self-time, get all those things.
1: What should people be doing when we say business time? What are some things that occupy your time when you're not in the studio that are business-related? What, what do you actively do trying to do to make sure that the boat stays afloat, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I try now to spend time in the mornings and that'll be my invoicing time. That'll be time that I'm like just dealing with taxes. Making steps and doing things that will push my quote unquote brand as a producer forward and doing podcasts like this. This is business to me that has the ability to reach people and it has the ability to further my career. I'm not sitting with a band right now, but it's going to reach people, you know? And, and there are certain things you know whether it's working with gear manufacturers, those are all part of this music industry that I have to focus on. I can't just be day in and day out with a band. I love making music. I love those days, but there has to be days that get the next gig and things that have to be prioritized to get the next gig. <laughs> you know one thing that is so simple and it's so it's silly almost but like answering your damn phone. I got to a point where it was very difficult for me to even answer the phone, you know? I mean, like, when you're in the studio, you're sitting there with a band, you don't answer your phone. Right. And it's like, well life goes on and the last thing you want to do after 10 11 hour days go like you know make a bunch of phone calls and you end up putting people off that doesn't work you have to prioritize like phone calls i have to prioritize emails i do that in the mind try, try to do that in the morning before i even go into the studio and try to beat a lot of that stuff whether it be like responding to emails whether it be like getting on the phone whether it be talking to i'm game planning like right now i'm game planning south by southwest making phone calls on that making stuff like that trying to set up i guess the idea is that come show day or whatever i'm doing three months from now the work has been done and we're just happening it's pre-production of life
1: oh i I love that you've said a couple things that are going to stick with me game planning and pre-production for life talk to me about what the term game planning means to you like what when you say i'm game planning south by southwest what does that mean
0: yeah so south by uh, for for arlen for the studio right now looks like 10 days of events right mm. each event i'm looking at my calendar over the interactive and music week and this is now our ninth year of south by in this building and normally what we do is you know we'll do a number sponsored by a number of different clients and we'll do bands you know so maybe we do six bands a day i said you know hang a flyer fly a full pa in the back a lot of times the idea is that there's like a bit of a happy hour hang during the day and then bands start at night it's almost a showcase slash industry party slash focus on whatever cause or whatever thing we're looking at and to me that has a lot to do with dealing with multiple entities multiple bands multiple sponsorships it's a whole thing it's a whole to do uh one thing that i'm trying to do right now is kind of do a little bit more gear related this year i want to have more gear manufacturers in the building try to do something more pro audio related less not less party related because there's always going to be like south by parties and south by that kind of stuff in our building we have a few days that are set up with south by southwest songwriting those are those days. We have a few day, one day that's set up by Playing for Change, which is like kind of a an organization that brings musicians together from across the world. We have showcases with a record company that wants to show off a band to radio pluggers, radio promoters, you Mm -hmm. know. So this is all computer work, meetings and (laughs) stuff like that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You can tell I love meetings. Uh you know, but but that is the idea that like that way the South by our South by presidents is really accurate and it, it portrays the way we want the studio to be portrayed it's great because it gets people in the studio to me it's important to focus on which people come in the studio i want people that are going to book studio time afterwards
1: can you talk to me about your perspective on how you handle money now versus how you did when you first got to austin
0: yeah when i first got to austin i spent all my money as soon as i made it <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I i think now the trick is like i said long money in the music industry, it's real easy to catch a day rate. If you make hit records on day rates, then when, when, when you're older, you're gonna be in trouble. That's the way I feel about it. The day rate in the studio is it's fine, it's awesome, but for me, it's very important. My, my interest and my focus has moved to producing, co-writing, things that actually will pull mailbox money, quite honestly. The day rate of a studio, the day rate of an engineer, I am so blessed for it. It's my bread and butter. But if I don't want to have to work every day of my life, then I got to have something that has some longevity in it. And that's also tough in today's world. I mean, records have moved different ways, but I realized that like producers, if you can build tracks and make tracks and try to push tracks, I look at all different angles, licensing angles, and not just record sales, but like as a, a songwriter or a producer, making music that for license deals, making music for... I, I look at all different ways to make an income. Even with the studio, we have to look at not necessarily just making rock and roll records. I, I can make a rock and roll record, but if I do a dozen or two dozen events or like corporate-sponsored events, that pads our pockets enough to be able to make punk rock records in off time records that I want to make that don't have huge budgets. It's a give and take. I've ran into situations where people are like, really, you're doing a party or an event with so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, and it's going to allow me to make this punk record that I think's really cool, or this art record that I think's really cool, that is going to have a hard time finding a big budget on it. So it's a bit of a balance. I think what we do in a studio is not just record making, it's content building on many levels and we use music you know i i look at a lot of things now and i think i like pairing a lot of music with video right now i think it's a full package i think you have to be selling a full package and and it's not just a, a cd and a jewel case anymore it's right you know sometimes it's one off sometimes it's one-off songs sometimes it's it's content building in all different directions but i think the recording studio and my skill as, as the guy behind the desk can be applied to many angles that, that can then be built for. You know, I'm looking at all different directions.
1: When you talk about the day rate and, and how that's that's fine, but that's not necessarily good for the long term, when you talk about getting involved in licensing, are you talking on the level of the producer sharing in the proceeds with the artist, or are you talking about generating your own music for that purpose?
0: Well, that goes both ways. Uh, You know, in my experience, and this is just my experience, but the songwriters is who normally gets the license deal. From what I understand, there can be a split that has to do with the master, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times that's a publishing deal. So yes, if you're a songwriter, but with that being said, yes, I am looking at making music that is not necessarily artist-related. There's not necessarily maybe one artist that this is not a record for a band. It's music that I can make in an off day that then, if I have the right avenues to licensing to people who plug music for television and film, a lot of music that I see on television and film is made, sometimes it's made by an artist under a disguise, under a fake name of some sort. It's a different type of project. I don't really think TV and film cares. In, In all honesty, sometimes, I mean, either they're looking for a specific name brand to sell a song or Mm -hmm. they're looking for the exact opposite of the same exact emotional feeling of that band without the price tag of that band. On many levels, it allows you a chance to make vibe music or make soundtrack music and that's all stuff that we can do in here that is not necessarily artist dependent if you are in that capacity.
1: Is that something you do?
0: That's something I'm working real hard to do. I had a handful of license with G last year with Gary, and it works really well. And the main thing I'm, I, I was funny, I sat on a, a thing last week with the Texas songwriter, you, and the two guys on the panel next to me, they did exactly that. They were licensed plug guys for television and film. And I've been saying forever that I want the guy that fast tracked me straight to the music coordinators of movies and stuff. Right. Really, the way those companies look to me these days is they have a roster of quote-unquote bands, but sometimes they're not even bands. Sometimes they're just entities that make music. And then when, when so-and-so's television show pops up and wants something that has something to do with a dreamscape and a movie shot or a shot of so-and-so sleeping or something, then they can run their client list of who has something that fits that or a female singer singing angst music. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's kind of what they're looking for. I feel like on many levels, it's very much the same thing as making a song in a record. Mm -hmm. It's just not necessarily going to release as a record.
1: About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app, Check it out. You know, you mentioned doing it with Gary Clark. How is it like, I'm always stumped at how to involve myself on that level because I don't understand it well enough to say that, yes, I have my day rate, but I'm producing. So therefore I need a portion of this. And that's, that's always a weird conversation for me
0: i think that's a that's a huge conversation you know on many levels what was the assistant engineer producer and mastering guy has all become on certain levels one guy i'm not saying all that i mean i i definitely still have another engineer in the room i engineer most of my stuff i mix most of my stuff and i produce most of my stuff and i send out for a mastering And I have another engineer who I would never call an assistant because he's way more than an assistant, but he's in the room as well. Now, how did four or five jobs just get put into three jobs? That's a big question right now. And then how do you bill for that? The industry is very much kind of, and this depends on what genre you're in, obviously, you know, there's a lot of guys that are the full package and they're doing every aspect of the job. Does that mean they bill for every aspect of the job? (laughs) That's a question. You know what I try to do? I try to build to where I can sleep at night. (laughs) And what I mean by that is like, we all know what it takes to live. You know, I'm not out to gouge people. I don't think I would work if I gouged people. I'm also not out to like just suffer. I think 20 years into it, I, I deserve my rates, but I think they're fair rates. It just all develops. I mean, you know, I will, like if I mix, I try to mix by the song rate, Mm -hmm. If I just engineer, then that's one specific rate. Or if I produce, then that normally means I'm producing engineering and mixing. And that's normally a third rate that's all packaged. So I do try to break it down. What I don't want to do is get in a situation where I'm being paid to engineer and producing the record because then I have resentment. So it's a bit of a balancing act of like how to approach that. I think it's really just open conversation with, with bands, open conversation with all the entities. Everyone's watching their budget right now. That's a fact. But I don't think necessarily everyone should be expected to do five jobs for the price of one. That's not how things work. It's up to us, it's up to me to kind of find a happy comfort level. I'm not trying to get rich I'm trying to make a living so I know where that comfort level is and I've also found that like when I'm fair with them I work a lot I think when you find yourself not getting phone calls then you should you should think about your rate (laughs) you know if if the skill level's on point then you should think about that I I have to raise my rate depending on how things work but that's been over a 20-year course Mm. it doesn't raise all that much I understand that like The music industry changes in different ways, but it's not broke. Everyone is, like, the music industry is making money. It's just making money in different places right now. And I think that's just a matter of, like, yes, traditional record sales are down, but there's a lot of places that are still doing quite well. Yeah. I think that's kind of up to managers and stuff like that to be working those angles.
1: Can you talk to me about... People skills and mm-hmm. working with artists and working with managers and working with the various entities within the world of music and recording. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Number one, it's it's your it's the make or break. I would tell you this, answer your phones and answer your emails. I think that's a huge part of Really, that's what all people want is the answers. You know what I mean? And I was the world's worst about avoiding it. It, To me, it was out of stress. It was out of like, like I said, I was in the studio 10 hours a day. What am I supposed to, how am I supposed to answer your phone call when you're blowing me up when I'm sitting in front of my current client? That was a problem. I think just a communication process is all people want. People are spending money; they want communication, and I work really hard. That's one of my main goals right now: is to like keep that communication line open. I don't think it's my job to BS like for or, like a, a manager. I think it's my job to shoot a manager straight. I work for the client. I work for the artist, and. My job is to, in my opinion, do the best thing for that client. And I always take the approach of like, I have my artist back, and that's my job is to have their back, whether there's pushback coming from here or pushback coming from here. A lot of times an artist will get. In a situation where they're like fighting an artistic fight and it just needs to be reworded a little bit or like you know we can just do this we can change this whatever it needs to be it's not it's a communication level but i think communication all in it and it starts with i think you know a producer on many level i think they want to be able to pick up the phone and be like when they're sometimes. The artist is doing the artist thing, and people want to know what's going on. And I think it's a producer's job to make everyone feel at ease and feel comfortable with that. It's my job to communicate to musicians what that artist wants, and it's my job to communicate to that manager or whoever is involved with the record making process that things are on track and things are moving the way it's supposed to be moving. Hmm. Kind of just put everyone at ease a little bit. Yeah, once it is communication, communication,
1: and. How are you feeling? What's your state of mind as, as far as survival these days? Are you satisfied, or is it still a struggle?
0: Oh, I'm really excited right now. I don't know. Yeah, it's always a struggle, but it's not a struggle in the sense of I'm not. I don't wake up thinking about another job. Let's put it that way. I wake up thinking about like how to keep climbing this mountain i'm really excited right now just because i believe the music industry is not in a terrible place i think there is a lot of potential right now and i think if you're willing to look outside the box and you're willing to really double down like right now i'm trying to really get focused and really get like i said i mean you know i got to a point where i can make records But you have to do more than just make records. You got to really look downstream and like game plan. I'm looking at what does my next year look like? And I have a lot of great ideas that I'm really excited about. And some of them will be records. And I have an idea of a film that I want to do or a documentary I want to do. I have an idea of like all sorts of different things. It's just a matter of making those things happen. But I am not by any means like bummed out about the state of what's happening i think i think the one thing that's really beautiful about this country is you have the ability to work hard and be successful
1: damn and straight if
0: you work hard and and you want it bad enough and you really I it was hard signing mortgage papers <laughs> i mean everything is hard you have to jump through hoops is what i'm saying it's like everything comes with things but really that's a that's an organizational that's a clerical thing you know, I always say the band that gets signed the one that has the keyboard player who's really good at returning emails. So a lot of times it's not necessarily, everyone says, wow, how did they get a shot? How did they get a shot? It's like someone trusted that they were going to answer the phone. And someone trusted that they were going to show up to their gig. And really what it comes to now is like when everyone's even, like if, if you take five different bands that are great bands, who gets the shot and who doesn't? The one who digs in on business. So I feel like on a skill level, I've spent a lot of time dialing in, making records, and now it's just a matter of kind of buckling down on the industry.
1: So if I may ask, how old is your kid now, and did you have any other kids?
0: No, so I only got one. He's nine, he'll be ten in April. Okay. Yeah, so uh, he's second half of fourth grade right now.
1: Oh man,
0: going into Christmas. Yeah, and he's amazing. He's really funny. I mean, he grew up in a recordings in recording studios naturally, and he's really opinionated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> God, I wonder where he gets that uh, from.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, I have to. My kid's really into hip hop. And I love hip-hop too. So we, we toss around Frank Ocean records, and then he'll play me a little Tekka record, and then I'll play him an Eminem record, and then he'll play me a Drake single, and we go back and forth. And then I'll take him to a rock show, and he'll tell me it's dad music. And I'm like, really? Oh. This is how it's gotten. I was like, you have no idea. But he he's funny. He's awesome. He, during Gary's last record, I flew him out to LA, and he spent a week at Village with us in the studio and he he thought he was big stuff man he get picked up at the hotel and taken to the studio and gets pizza when he gets pizza and sits there and plays Fortnite in the lounge and yeah that's his thing so it took him a while because on a certain level he was tired of the studio you know the studio is something that took dad away for a long time and it was taking a bit of a process to get him he likes hanging out in the studio but he's also he likes his art he's more he's kind of into his visual art and sometimes you know i don't know unless yesterday i was with him and he He tries to tell you, he actually spit lyrics to me for the first time, which is hilarious. Yeah, hip hop. I mean, he's a little hip hop kid. So he wrote a hip hop song about two anime characters battling each other. And I was like, this is genius. I was like, we're
1: going to go with this. (laughs) There's your licensing opportunity right there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dad's going to produce this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 100%. We, We get that dialed in quick.
1: Well, we're about out of time. Where can people find out more about you?
0: Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, yeah, the easiest way to see me is arlenstudios.com. I don't really have like a website or anything. I'm on Instagram, but yeah, Jacob Skiba.
1: Okay, well, we'll include both those in the show notes for the audience. Hey, man, it was great talking to you. I'm so glad Steve recommended you and I really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks again. Awesome,
0: thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me, man.
1: All right, take care. Jacob Skiba here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. want to thank everybody that helped out with the show, including Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the working-class audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his silky smooth voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, spread the word, tell all of your pro audio friends, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,